This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, I've got a terrific show lined up for you today. In segments two and three, Mr. David Skarika, who is the publisher of the newsletter Addicted to Profits, will be joining me. We're going to talk about Fed policy, what's ahead for stocks, what's ahead for gold, what's ahead for silver, and we'll get his take. Uh, David uh, is a returning guest to the program, and it's uh, always a terrific conversation. You'll want to stay tuned for that. In the last segment of today's program, I'll be talking to you about a proposal put forth by Ms. Elizabeth Warren. She has thrown her hat into the ring and has come up with an idea for a new tax. I'm going to explain it to you, and I'm going to give you my take. And in this segment, I'm going to talk to you a bit about your 401k. I know that many of you have a 401k that you have with your employer. Now, you might be surprised to learn that the man who started or pushed for 401k plans now has regrets. The gentleman's name is Mr. Herbert Whitehouse. Now, that's probably not a household name, but... Everyone or nearly everyone knows what a 401k is. And back in 1981, Mr. Whitehouse really pushed for 401k plans to become mainstream. And now he regrets his role in really almost universalizing a 401k plan. The Wall Street Journal recently ran a piece, and I'll give you just a bit from that article. 35 years later, The former Johnson & Johnson human resources executive has misgivings about what he helped start. What Mr. Whitehouse and other proponents didn't anticipate was that the tax-deferred savings tool would largely replace pensions as big employers look for ways to cut expenses. But that is exactly what has happened. Today, in doing a little bit of research for today's show... I found that 13% of all private sector workers have a traditional defined benefit pension. You know, the kind of pension that pays you a fixed amount every month. That's down from 38% in 1979. So about two-thirds of the folks that had pensions about 35 years ago don't have them anymore. Now, the 401k has some other issues that you may want to be aware of. One, many of the investment options in a 401k will subject your retirement savings to wild swings in the market. That's because many 401k plans have limited investment options. Now, often you have an option of certain types of funds, stock funds, bond funds, and money market funds. But in some economic cycles, stocks and bonds don't do so well. In some cycles, they do well. In some cycles, they don't do so well. Now, if you have been contributing to a 401k plan for, say, 15 or 20 years or more, you certainly know that what I'm about to say is true. And of course, if you haven't been contributing to a 401k for all that long, if you're just getting started, then you can learn from what's happened historically. See, in the current economy, we are subject to boom and bust cycles because of Federal Reserve policy. And that's obviously an opinion, but it is an opinion that's been validated by the opinions of many others, including Mr. David Skarika, whom we'll talk to in the next segment. 
The other issue with 401k plans, often the only options that you have are mutual funds. And when you have a fund, you're also paying fees. And from my experience, many folks don't understand exactly what they're paying in fees. NPR published an article that really investigated these fees. And one of the conclusions that the article came to is that in many of these plans, the fees are excessive. Here's a bit from what NPR found. Americans collectively are losing billions of dollars a year out of their retirement accounts because they're paying excessive fees, according to researchers studying thousands of employer-sponsored retirement plans across the country. The researchers say that part of the trouble is that many employers that offer 401k plans to their workers are outgunned by financial firms that sell them bad plans loaded with hefty fees. That's especially true, they say, for small and mid-sized employers that don't have much financial expertise in-house. Now, if you have a 401k plan, you would probably be wise to know what your fees are. You can find out what those fees are by reading your prospectus, and you should certainly do that. It would also be wise, just from an historical perspective, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out that just because something happened in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future, but I would certainly want to know what's the worst year my particular investment fund has had, because should the market have another bad year, and in this boom and bust type economy, I believe that's a given, you will have bad years then what, historically speaking, has been my, my risk? What's my drawdown risk? Well, if you're 59 and a half or older, you may even have some better news. You may be eligible to do an in-service distribution from your 401k plan that would allow you to transfer all or most of your assets from your 401k plan to an IRA plan that would then allow you to invest your retirement assets anywhere you want, not just in the investment options in your current 401k plan that could subject you to market volatility and on which you could be paying excessive fees. See, if you are eligible and elect to do an in-service distribution from your 401k plan, you simply roll the assets that are in your current 401k plan out to an IRA you then have complete control over where those assets are invested. However, even though you've done an in-service distribution, you can continue to participate in the 401k plan. You can continue to defer part of your pay into the plan, and you can collect any matching contributions that might be available from your employer. Now, if you're participating in a 401k plan and you would like to know what your current fees are in dollars and cents per year and like to know what your drawdown risk is, historically speaking, and again, just because something happened in the past doesn't mean it will happen again in the future. On today's program, I'd like to invite you to get a portfolio stress test that will provide a detailed analysis with these two objectives in mind. Now, let me point out that if you do want to get a portfolio stress test, we don't need any personal detailed information. You should not give that information to anyone. 
In other words, we don't need account numbers. We don't need social security numbers. We just need to know the name of your investment and how much money you have invested in that particular investment. That's it. Once we have that information, which takes just a few minutes to gather, we will then prepare your portfolio stress test, which will give you a very detailed analysis on each holding that you have. It will also summarize it, because I know there's many of you out there that don't want to read a detailed analysis. You would rather just take a look at a summary. So for those of you that would just like to read a summary, we accommodate that as well. The summary will show you what are your fees in terms of dollars and cents. What is your historical drawdown risk? If you go back and look at the history of your investment fund, what is the worst year that that fund has experienced? And what can you do to potentially protect yourself? If you'd like to get a portfolio stress test, all you have to do is call our office during normal business hours. The number is 866-921-3613. The number again is 866-921-3613. And I will provide, again, this phone number in the fourth segment of today's program in case you weren't in a position to write it down. But again, it's 866-921-3613. I will be back after these words, and we will be chatting with Mr. David Skarika. Don't go away. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. Portfolio Watch is a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you free, just visit yourportfoliowatch.com and enter your name and email. The website is yourportfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we monitor and update our forecast for your money. Don't miss a week. Visit yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. That's yourportfoliowatch.com. I'm pleased to have joining me on the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program today, Mr. David Skarika. Uh, David is a returning guest, and uh, he publishes and has founded, actually, a terrific investing newsletter titled Addicted to Profits. If you'd like to learn more about David and his work, you can go to addictedtoprofits.net, and I would encourage you to do so. David, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you. It's been a while. It has been a while, but uh, let's let's jump in. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, uh, and, and I know one of the things that we, we kind of talked about before we started actually recording today's conversation was the fact that the U.S. government deficit is, is blowing up. In fact, I think I read in October, uh, comparison year over year, that the deficit expanded by about $100 billion. Uh, that certainly is at some point going to be a very big hurdle and uh, may have some significant effect on the U.S. government bond market. What's your take? 
Well, I think actually it's actually worse than that because if you go actually look and, and Jeff Gunlock, um, the largest um, bond manager in the world, has talked about this. If you actually look at the deficit and the uh, compared to the increase in the national debt, um, this is like a counting trick the government plays. So what they were saying was the, the, the deficit went up from about six to seven hundred um, billion, like they're saying, to um, eight hundred billion. But if you don't look at it, the increase in the national debt was actually 1.3 uh, trillion. And because they have all these one-time accounting arrears, like, you know, something like, say they have an excursion overseas, or you have, um, uh, you loan money to Social Security, or or um, you have some kind of, um, you know, hurricane or natural disaster, they they, they say it's, it's almost like these companies that don't do gap accounting. They say, oh, it's a one-time thing, but... Come on, there's there's a national disaster, be it an earthquake or hurricane every year. Um, the U.S. is permanently seems to be in these uh, foreign excursions, so these really aren't one-time charges. So really, the national debt increased by 1.3 trillion, not 800 billion as reported. And 1.3 trillion is roughly six percent of GDP. And if you, that is a really insane number. If you look at it this way. Uh, France right now, where uh, Macron is trying to appease the yellow vest, they're running a 3.5% um, deficit. I'm from Canada, and we almost, we have this, like, socialist, basically socialist prime minister right now. And Canada's deficit's only around 1.5 to 2%, and there was a big brouhaha when Italy was trying to run a 2.4% of GDP deficit. 6% is out of this world. This is the kind of thing that, um, Greece and these countries are doing before a major crisis. So I think that's one reason you've seen gold go up. Um, the, the, the problem with the bond market is banks can buy bonds and not mark them to market. So they can buy as much as they want. And if, if, if the bond goes down, the yield goes up, they don't have to mark those losses. So you can have banks coming in there to support the market. Obviously, the Federal Reserve coming and buy. Um, you know, with Japan, the, the national debt is 260% of GDP, and their interest rate is 0 0.01, so it's basically zero. So um, that can be, like, artificially held down by the powers that be, but I think the biggest thing is um, the actual deficit year over year. And remember, the deficit, or this increase in national debt, is factored into GDP um, um the, the way they multiply it. So one reason we had 3% growth last year was not because we have this great booming economy or the whatnot. Um, it's because they blew up the deficit with the, uh, the tax cut combined with spending increases, and that factors into the calculation of GDP. So that's why we had 3% growth for the first time in a number of years. And, and the, the dangerous thing about this is, um, with this 1.3 trillion, is that's essentially what you had you know, at the bottom of the economy in 09, 10. So now if you get some kind of recession or downturn when revenues go down and expenses go up because, you know, the outlays go up because more people on welfare, unemployment, and whatnot, um, the deficit can really blow up to, like, say, close to $2 trillion, which is really almost 10% of GDP. That's kind of deficits we were running in World War II when we're essentially saving the Western world, uh, you know, from Nazism. So um, this is a really dangerous thing. What's interesting about it, um, if you look at the history of, say, empires or, or um, um, you know, global um, uh, dominant economies, like, the British and the Romans never even did something like this when, you know, when they imploded. They were never running, like, a 10% of GDP uh, deficit 
say, that wasn't in a wartime, right? So this is going to be really interesting to see what happens. And the difference between, say, the U.S. and Japan, which I just mentioned, is the Japanese debt is all domestically owned. And uh, Japan runs a large current account surplus because, you know, obviously Japan exports cars and they have an export-oriented um, economy. Where the United States, on the other hand, has um, a lot of this debt owned by foreigners and uh, does not have a big export-oriented economy and have a big current account uh, deficit. So they can't fund the federal deficit from the current account or from exports. So I think at some point this will catch up. And I think where you're seeing it, forget the bond market, I think you're seeing it more in the gold market. I think that's why gold and precious metals are, you know, 1325, 1330. And gold, if it goes to 1380, that's a massive breakout of a five-year base. And I think that is what's sensing the problems you're going to have with national debt and the deficit. So, David, you know, there, there, there seems to be zero political attention being paid to this in the United States, uh, despite the, the comparisons that you've made. That This is definitely uh, uh, problem territory. So uh, we'll, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about gold and silver in a minute, but we talk about all these deficits, we talk about the, the national debt, but our listeners really would like to know, what is the end game? How would our average listener with money in a 401K or IRA, how might they eventually be affected because of these runaway deficits and this monster level of debt? Well, one of my theories right now is that when we do have another downturn is, and um, we're seeing, you know, the rise of populism on both the left and the right, you know, Trump is, you know, like he's changed the, 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 the Republican Party. Now the Republican Party is talking about, you know, fair trade deals instead of free trade, if you want to call that protectionism, whatever, right? And, you know, the, the immigration thing and all this sort of thing. And the Democrats have moved way part of the left where, you know, a slew of Democratic candidates, you know, talking about 70% tax, you know, rates and, and, and all this sort of thing. So I think the problem with these two extremisms, I don't like personally, I'm a libertarian, but I don't like either of them. I think you're getting too extreme to either side. And um, I think what essentially that means, and both of them have no plans to deficit. So if you're on a 401k, I don't think you can be like the total team gloomer because look what the stock market has done in the last 10 years, right? So, but I think like a 10 to 20% weighting in precious metals would be prudent at this time or some kind of commodities because my opinion is talking about get back to the populism part of it is when we do see a downturn and there's another form of QE, it won't be the QE that we just saw, which was essentially put in the hands of bankers and rich people. And that's why financial assets went up so much. The next QE, Jerry, uh, Jeremy Corbyn has called this already in the UK. He leads in an election there. Uh, Labor Party uh, leader, and he's a very far left Labor Party leader. He's not Tony Blair. Um, he said there should be QEs for people. So that means that basic uh, income, um, stimulus, um, uh, infrastructure, but that's more inflationary, right? But that means you're going to be buying, you know, when, when, when the QE goes down to the average person, they got to buy food and goods and services. Um, obviously, infrastructure buys steel, concrete, copper, et cetera, those sort of things. So I think you're, you're going to want some exposure to commodities. And if you actually look at commodities, the CRB or whatever commodity index or you know, gold stock compared to the S&P 500, commodities compared to equities are back to where they were basically in the late 90s. So you're getting at them very, very cheap. So yeah, I think the average person is, like I said, I don't think you can be like totally doom and gloom, but I think you can put 20, 25% of your um, portfolio right now in commodity stocks, um, I like, obviously, metals more than energy, but um, especially gold and precious metals, which are close to breaking out. Um, commodity stocks, 
um, commodities themselves, gold. I think that's a good way to protect yourself. And you can still have, you know, say 30, 40%, whatever you want. I'm not a financial advisor, but um, exposure to equities. You can still be in the stock market, but that commodities play, I think, is going to hedge you if there is some kind of inflationary bailout if we do see a bust. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Mr. David Skarika. His newsletter is Addicted to Profits. You can learn more about his work at addictedtoprofits.net. Um, our audio is a little rough today. That's because we're talking to David from his home in the Bahamas. So please forgive any of the uh, audio. Just so you know, I was, I, was, I was late getting home, so I'm actually on the side of the road in my car. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're making it work, and I just want the listeners to know that we made every effort to bring them this information today. So, David, let me, in the, in the say, four minutes or so we have left in this segment, Recently, the Federal Reserve Chairman seems to have reversed course. Uh, they were talking about a couple more rate hikes this this year, and uh, now Mr. Powell came out and said that they're going to kind of monitor the equity markets. Uh, what, what do you think happens from here? Well, I think the Fed does. I think the, the Fed's whole policy is around the equity markets. I think this, like looking at, like, like, like you know, employment and, and wages and inflation. I think that's BS. I think if you go look at when they were really hawkish. When were they hawkish? Late September, early October, right at the top of the equity markets. So they got complacent because the equity markets were dropping out, right? And the S&P was 2,900, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, everything is great. We can, uh, we can keep raising rates. And then you get this fourth quarter sell-off in stocks, and obviously you've got things, issues also going on with China and the trade deal and et cetera, et cetera. But I think what occurred is you essentially saw this 20% drop in the equity market, and there wasn't one junk bond issued in all of December. Just think about that. Not one. So they saw this freezing up in kind of um, the debt markets, too, and they were like, oh, no, we got to reverse course. And by the way, when has the Federal Reserve ever raised rates when the equity market is down 20% or more? Maybe back in the 70s when you know, the economy wasn't dependent on uh, equity, you know, uh, market inflation and rich people making money and the trickle-down effect. But, like, they have, every time the market drops 15 to 20%, you can be guaranteed they're going to reverse course, they're going to talk dovish, and, um, and the whatnot. So the question is now, if you go look at 01 and you go look at 2007, when they reverse course, that did not stop a bear market from occurring. The market had an initial rally, like we're seeing now, and then rolled over afterwards. So we probably need some kind of catalyst. I think the catalyst will probably come from China. I think the Chinese economy has got some real risk to it right now. But um, at some point, if this is a bear market, you're going to see the market roll over, even when they forget about not raising, when they switch to cutting rates and even QE. Um, Because that's what happens in all these bear markets, is that they go from raising to neutral, and cutting, and even when they cut, though, the market continues to go lower. Happened to 0708, happened to 0102. It's going to happen again. So, moving ahead, then, you are forecasting lower stock mar- uh, lower stock prices. Is that fair? I do think this is a bear market rally. It's, you know, when you're in a nine-year bear market, bull market, it's tough to, you know, kind of fight that trend, but I do think this is a bear market rally, and the thing is, it's not so much... Okay, who cares? Like the S&P goes up 15%, down 15%. The key is, though, it's so overvalued. They're not going to have that much upside from current levels. 
So I, as I mentioned, my uh, goal of commodities being so cheap compared to stocks. Um, there's other sectors I like, like um, uh, the 3D printing, which are really beaten up. It's a, like a, a technology of the future, I think. So you want to be, I want to be in sectors that I think that have, and companies that I think have upside when compared to the market. So if the market goes up 2%, I'd rather be in something that can go up like 20%. So I, I, that to me is more important right now. And the goal, like for example, I own Eldorado though, like just as exposure. And that stock is a turnaround place, a producing gold company. It's had problems in the recent years. It's up 23% today. And that's the kind of thing I want to be in, something that can reverse like that to the upside, not just be in, uh, you know, everyone's obsessed with the S&P and there's passive investing, people in the same stocks or whatever, they the spiders. But I think your, your, your gains in the U.S. stock market, regardless of the bear market or not, are going to be extremely limited. And I would look at diversifying into other sectors which are cheap. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but we will be back and continue our conversation with Mr. David Skarika after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. Portfolio Watch is a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you free, just visit yourportfoliowatch.com and enter your name and email. The website is yourportfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we monitor and update our forecast for your money. Don't miss a week. Visit yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. That's yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me today is the Addicted to Profits newsletter founder and publisher, Mr. David Skarika. I would encourage you to check out his work at addictedtoprofits.net. That's addictedtoprofits.net. And in the last segment, we were talking a bit about the the, the, the Fed's uh, more dovish position as far as interest rates are concerned. We talked a bit about uh, the federal government uh, debt, but uh, what we didn't really talk about, David, was the fact that Private sector debt levels are now 800 to 900 billion, according to the data I've read, higher than they were just prior to the financial crisis. Does that is, is that another signal that we're headed for recession? Well, if you look at what's really interesting, and actually I'm, I'm putting together a proposal, I'm going to probably have a new book published, and part of the thesis is that we're in this big debt super cycle, right? And the end of the super cycle in debt, like so, that's secular, right? The government level has been going on for decades and decades. But this last move, so if you look at two of the biggest increases in debt, or three actually, are corporate debt, um, subprime auto, or, or, or auto debt in, in general, and um, student debt. So the last, the, 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 the latter two are actually consumer forms of debt, right? So what happened after the financial crisis was, okay, if you were someone who had one of these teaser rates, you couldn't afford the house, you had to default on the house, you know, the house got you know, foreclosed and taken away by the bank. Well, now you're a renter, right? So when you're a renter, you still need a car. You still need to go to work. 
drop your kids off at school or soccer or football, whatever they do. And so the, but you have no credit because your credit's gone to garbage because you defaulted on your hands. So what happened was all of these banks got behind a lot of these subprime auto lenders and were like, well, this makes sense that this guy who had this $300,000 house can't eat your own now needs this $20,000 car he can't afford. <laughs> so, um, so we're going to lend him and we're going to lend him at some, you know, audacious interest rate because he has no credit. Like his FICO is, um, under 500. So there's been this huge boom in it. And, um, there's actually a stock in reported earnings the day we're talking here. Um, as a disclosure, I'm short the stock, um, via put options, uh, called CACC, uh, Credit, um, Auto Assessment Corp. And essentially that's what they are the kind of the original subprime lender back in the 70s. And they blew up their business. Their stock actually went from the teens to f- over $400 a share during this bubble because they were so aggressive about lending, uh, buying, you know, the stuff I model, uh, debt itself, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think that, and again, it's the people that really can't afford that, that are, are doing those things. And when a recession happens, those people at the lower end of the economic spectrum, they're tending to be the ones who get laid off in the recession. So then they won't be able to afford those cars, the fault on them, just like they don't default on their horses, especially on their houses uh, 10 years ago. And you're, you're going to see this problem there. And of course, student debt, one reason the student debt has exploded is that uh, because of um, um, uh, interest rates being artificially low, what people have decided is, or universities decided, hey, if you know rates are 5% instead of 10% in student loan, we can double the tuition because that's the same interest amount that's interest, right? So if someone's paying interest on a, a hundred grand loan um, instead of fifty grand, but the interest rate's cut in half, you're still paying the same amount of interest to you. So um, uh, um, these these tuitions have blown up, and these students, um, you know, have these huge debt loads. And it's bad because the millennials are a huge part of the population. They can't afford cars or homes or anything because they are essentially in debt, uh, uh, you know, to the schools. And then forget about, it. we're talking about the United States. If you are in countries like Australia or Canada, which have had these huge real estate bubbles, even bigger than what the U.S. was in 2006, the, the average consumer in Canada and Australia is you know, leveraged, you know, to the hill. So all of these things, I think, will come to fruition when there's kind of a, a downturn, um, et cetera. Like, I, I'm from Canada, and I haven't lived there in years, but I know that a lot of my Canadian friends, they have mortgages. They don't even have mortgages. They have it on lines of credit, which means that you just pay the interest. You're not paying down payments or, um, or the principal or anything. So I think all of this kind of leveraged consumer will come uh, to fruition at some point. We just don't know when. So all they've done is transfer the debt, like, okay, these people own, you know, mortgages on their house, you default on that, now they own whatever, got loans on cars, student debt, you know, et cetera. Yeah, and, and David, you know, when you look at the fact that, uh, uh, speaking of the U.S. economy, uh, but I think the Canadian economy is similar. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it, it's so dependent on consumer spending, and cons- when consumers are up to their neck in debt, that alone is an economic drag. So isn't that really what brought on the, uh, or at least part of what brought on the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008? And since banks have debt as assets, that caused banking failures. I mean, aren't we on that same trajectory now? Yeah, and I think, like, um, Australia and Canada are where those kind of things are going to happen more. The state obviously still has a debt problem. And like I said, the only reason you have growth is because they blew up the deficit. But I think in terms of the con- real consumer debt, 
And the subprime auto is a very small part of the economy. That's one thing I should have stated about that. Um, but um, I, I definitely think that Australia – I think Canada's going to be worse than the States was because, again, if you go look at the, the way the Canadian consumer is leveraged right now, it's actually way worse than the way um, an American consumer was leveraged in 2006, 2007. They have more debt compared to their income, their assets, et cetera. So um, I think that's, that's totally what's going to happen. And by the way, housing prices in the States are still are similar, too, in that the actually average uh, price of a house throughout the whole country, the K-Shiller index, is actually almost back to what it was in 2006, even though the amounts of sale are way lower. And what's happened is it's just, the increase in the stock market, asset prices, inflation has done this. And, again, what's bad about this is that because wages haven't increased like that, the average person really can't afford a house anymore. You know, like, I'm, I'm telling where I'm from, I'm from like, um, a place that was pretty, actually, I would say uh, lower middle class, um, you know, 30 years ago. And now it's to the point where now this, this town I'm from is called Dundas. Uh, Dublin or Toronto is so high in price, you know, some 23-year-old kid coming out of college, there's no way they can afford a house. You know, it's, it's, it's the average house price is $500,000 and it's 20% down. So uh, I just think that, yeah, that consumer debt is going to come back to haunt us. And we've papered everything over. And the one issue I've had with Trump is I actually like Trump. Right? It was like, you were talking about the stock market in a bubble and, you know, the economy wasn't real. And that's what I agreed with. But now he thinks he talks like it's the greatest economy ever. But it's not. It, it's all papered over through asset inflation, uh, stock market uh, bubble, et cetera, et cetera. You know, housing bubble uh, part two, yeah, part two, you know. So um, I, I think these things will come back to haunt us when they explode in price. And no one knows when they explode to the downside. And I think the Federal Reserve, you said, just turning dovish, they're very cognizant of this, and they don't want that to happen. Powell doesn't want that to happen under his watch. So maybe the bus could be more like 01, 02. It could take longer than 07, 08, because the Fed is going to fight it every um, you know, single step of the way down. So... David, when you when you go back and take a look at these these bubbles that exist, uh, they really exist simply because there's fiat currency and they can just create more almost at will. And you mentioned that, uh, that there's been discussion of different forms of QE, maybe going you know direct to consumer things like that. But doesn't that just make the eventual problem worse? And can it even work? Are they are they out of bullets at this point? Well, the problem with QE for the people, as I call it, is that's how you get hyperinflation, right? That's because the people are the ones who buy bread and, you know, average stuff at the store. And this form of QE, it just went to banks and everyone's speculating the stocks and art, you know, whatever the asset was. So um, I think the problem is if you get some kind of populist in, um, uh, especially, you know, like a guy like Corbin or um, or someone like, you know, I, I don't know, like uh, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Warren or whatever, if somebody like that, if they do that sort of thing, it's going to be majorly inflationary, right? Because then instead of the market just filtering into the financial market, it's going to filter into the real economy, and you're going to have massive hyperinflation or high inflation, and high inflation and hyperinflation is how you destroy economy. We've seen that. So Venezuela for years and decades was the richest country in South America, now look at it. Right, so um, this is the problem when you get that form of money printing. Um, uh, you know, Zimbabwe was essentially the second richest country to uh, South Africa 
for decades and decades as well, right? So um, in Africa, right? So when you get that hyperinflation, you essentially destroy the economy. But on the other hand, I don't know what other way out they have. You've got a 21 trillion dollar deficit. You know, the debt, uh, the debt to GDP in the states is over 100. percent That's Italian Greece levels, right? Even even all these other uh, places you consider socialist, like the UK or the or Canada or, or France, they don't have over 100 percent debt to GDP, right? So um, I, I don't know what the other way out um, will be at, at, at some point. So. I, I think all roads will lead to inflation. And they, I got to admit, the powers that be did a great job. And in 2009, I was bullish on, on the equity markets when they, you know, after the class. But I, I got out early. And I never in my wildest imagination, without real economic growth, thought that they could inflate another bubble like this. So I got to hand it to them that they did this. But I just think that the next round, everyone's going to expect, um, oh, yeah, yeah, they're doing QE, the market crashes 50%. And we'll be like, oh, they're doing QE again. It's going to go up for eight, nine years, just like it did 2009 to 2018. But if it's my kind of QE that I think they're going to do, it's going to go more into, like I said, inflationary assets, et cetera. And, like, look, right now, I don't see a huge way out. Like, I'm a libertarian. I I think government should be, like, slashing spending. But, like, Trump's a Republican. The spending is is booming. It's it's going out of control. Actually, the deficit's not out of control because of the tax cuts. It, uh, it, um, the revenues the government's getting are essentially flat, or slightly up. It's because they're they're they're, they're spending like drunken sailors. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. David Skarika. I encourage you to check out his website at addictedtoprofits.net. David, thanks for joining us today, and we'd love to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. RLA Radio will return after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. Portfolio Watch is a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you free, just visit yourportfoliowatch.com and enter your name and email. The website is yourportfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we monitor and update our forecast for your money. Don't miss a week. Visit yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. That's yourportfoliowatch.com. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today, and thanks again to Mr. David Skarika for joining us today. And as promised in this segment, for those of you that would like to get a portfolio stress test, as I promised in the first segment, I am repeating the office phone number. It is 866-921-3613. You know, if you listen to the program a couple weeks ago, uh, my guest, John Rubino, used a phrase that I have adopted, of course, with attrition. He said that the crazier that economic conditions become, that politics become commensurately crazier. 
And here we are kicking off the 2020 election season. I, for one, am not quite ready for it. I don't know about you. But we are seeing some relatively crazy stuff being proposed. Now, one of those ideas was proposed by Ms. Elizabeth Warren, who has proposed what we call an asset tax as she kicks off her campaign to become what she hopes is president of the United States. Now, if she gets her way, the tax would be levied on those with a net worth in excess of $50 million. Any wealth above that threshold would be taxed at 2% each year, and if you happen to have a billion dollars in assets, it would be taxed at 3%. And Ms. Warren said that if you're going to try to leave the country to get away from the tax, there is a one-time exit tax of 40% on any assets you have in excess of $50 million. Now, while there are economic implications to such a tax, and there are questions about the constitutionality of wealth confiscation, in fact, to quote an often used fraction, when discussing Ms. Warren, I would give this proposal a chance of about 1 in 1,064 of passing. That aside, however, I want to talk purely about what I would call pure political snake oil. See, once the door has opened to a new tax, it doesn't take long, and the tax begins to be expanded to affect more and more people. In the February newsletter uh, that I published called the You May Not Know Report, I talk about it in detail, but here on the radio and on the podcast, in the interest of time, I'm going to give you just one example. See, the income tax, many people don't know this, but President Lincoln imposed an income tax during the Civil War on incomes over $800 annually. So to put that number in perspective, it was about 3% on any income in excess of $25,000 per year if you use today's numbers. Well, Congress repealed the income tax in 1871, but 23 years later, in 1894, Congress once again decided to put an income tax in place. But the very next year, in 1895, the Supreme Court declared that income tax was unconstitutional. So you needed to have an amendment to the Constitution in order to make the income tax legal. And that happened in 1913, when the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified and the income tax was once again revived. Now, an interesting question, and a very fair question, is how would the populace agree to an income tax when, with the exception of the Civil War, the country had operated just fine with no income tax? Well, it's a fair question, and it has a very predictable answer. See, back in 1913, the income tax was initially a tax only on the wealthy to make them pay their fair share. People supported the income tax because it was originally meant to impose only very low tax rates on only the highest incomes. Proponents who argued for the ratification of the 16th Amendment said that it would make the robber barons pay their fair share of taxes. Sounds a lot like Ms. Warren's proposal, doesn't it? Well, what I've done is taken the tax rules that were in place in 1913, and I have simply adjusted these numbers for the government's estimate of inflation, which arguably may be low, just to give you some idea of what the income tax would look like if it was just being implemented today, 
based on the 1913 rules adjusted for inflation. Well, if you're a single taxpayer, the first $75,000 in income you would get would be completely tax-free. It was $3,000 in 1913, but adjusted for inflation, that's $75,000 today. A married couple, the first $100,000 in income that you would receive would be tax-free. And then from $100,000 in income to $500,000, the tax rate would be 1%. And it would be graduated so that once your income got to $12,700,000, it would jump to 7%. Think about it, $12,700,000. Imagine yourself being alive when the income tax was being proposed and adjusted for today's numbers, have a politician say, we're only going to make those who earn $100,000 a year or more pay this tax, and then the tax rate will only be 1%. And you don't pay 7% unless you've got $12,700,000 in income. Now, initially, the income tax did affect only the very wealthy, which obviously comprised an exceptionally small segment of the population. That's how the majority of the population got on board with the income tax. Now, adjusted for inflation, a couple earning $100,000 a year under the 1913 rules today would pay no tax. However, today, that same couple, by the time you add in Social Security taxes, pay between $17,000 and $18,000 in taxes. Nearly 20% of their income is gone in the form of taxes. Similarly, When Social Security benefits first became taxable in 1983, that was again a tax only on the wealthy, but in the past 35 years, the rules have changed, and now many, many Social Security recipients pay tax on their benefits. Now here is the reservation. If Ms. Warren's proposal should pass constitutional muster and becomes the law of the land, This new tax on assets will be no different than the income tax or tax on Social Security. As time goes on, rates will go up and thresholds will be lowered and more people will be affected. That is reason enough to oppose it. Now, under the new tax law, there are some opportunities for many folks who have IRAs and 401k plans to potentially save some money in income taxes. We have a book that explains. If you would like to get a free copy of the book, I'm offering it on this week's program. All you have to do to get a copy of the book is visit the website, IRA Transformation Plan. That's IRATransformationPlan.com. And you can get a copy of the book sent to you absolutely free of charge in it. You'll be able to take a look at different tax-saving strategies for your IRA and 401k. And uh, this book is really geared for those who are 59 and a half or older with money in an IRA or a 401k. Let me also remind you, as I close this week's program, that each week we have a free email newsletter which gives you commentary on what's going on in the economy and in the markets over the past week. You can get a free subscription to that newsletter by simply visiting the website, yourportfoliowatch.com. The website is yourportfoliowatch.com. 
in it this past week. We talk about the potential breakout we're seeing in gold and silver at this point. As John Rubino said on today's program, uh, owning some tangible assets in your portfolio, given what might happen from here on out, makes some sense. So go ahead and go to yourportfoliowatch.com. Give us your name and email. We'll be glad to include you on the list. We never share your information. That's our program for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you again next week.